you can grab a seat. And by golly, good morning. Oh man, this is, uh, this is fun. Spring 2016 is here. Uh, in case you couldn't tell, we are very, very full this morning. Uh, and this is bound to happen generally uh, when this certain Sunday rolls around. So I would just take a moment right now and encourage you uh, or let you know that we actually have a 7 p.m. service as well. Uh, if you're interested in, you know, waking up a little bit later, uh, maybe getting your homework done around lunchtime instead of pushing it and procrastinating until, you know, Thursday, uh, you want to do it now, you know, today, uh, we, this evening is here for you. We have a 7 p.m. service, exact same thing, same message, same everything. So I would, you know, just let you know that's there. Parking is wonderful. Uh, you get to park uh, here which is beautiful. So anyway, uh, man, so glad you're here. I'd love to just welcome you, and I'm excited that you get to check this little thing out. I want my mom. You pulled my mom. My said it's it's say sorry to me again. Wiggling. My, my mom, mom told me I was wiggling. My mom no, wiggling. is not. It's it's so, my mommy, it's wiggling outside, maybe. been there, right? (laughs) We've had our hearts poked from time to time. We've maybe had those disputes about whether it's raining or sprinkling, right? I don't know. It's, It's hard to tell sometimes. Sometimes we find ourselves in those moments in conflict with someone, and there's honestly, there's, there's no resolution in sight until we just start poking each other in hearts or eyes or whatever it might be, because there's no, uh, uh, there's no hope for resolution. There's certain combinations in our world, in our lives that we've seen, where that often lead to conflict and, and disharmony, because there seems to be just a foundational disconnect between the two parties, right? Whether it's young boys and young girls, whether it's brothers and sisters, siblings, uh, whether it's maybe dogs and cats, whether it's Aggies and just like anyone else (laughs) at any other college. There's a fundamental disconnect in certain areas of our life that leads to a lot of conflict. And sadly, the truth is that we often assume that this disconnect is present between faith and work. Our personal faith, our belief in God, our belief in what is worthwhile in the world, and our work, our vocation, our career. We often assume, as believers, that there's a disconnect there. But there's not. There really is not. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about the connection that actually exists between faith and work. Because the reality is that we often see them as things that are disconnected, as things that are separate, but yet when we really look at it, we will realize through Scripture that they're actually deeply integrated. No goal can be set without faith, and no goal can be reached without work. We need them together in harmony, working together to accomplish tasks, to accomplish goals, to do good work. 
When we look in Scripture, when we look at the, the Word of God, we'll see that He calls every believer to both walk and work by faith. Because it's only by faith that we can work for both the glory of God and the good of others. This morning is going to serve primarily as an introduction to the series. The first of six weeks is really going to be kind of setting up the rest, the next five weeks. Because what we're doing this morning is we're looking at this perceived disconnection between faith and work. We're looking at this fundamental disconnect that we seem to perceive yet isn't actually there. We need to understand why they seem to be disconnected so that we can understand how to reconnect them in our daily lives. The world as a whole, our culture as a whole, knows that that faith and work should be together. Our culture is beginning to see that when people don't believe in what they're doing, when people don't bring faith and belief and conviction into the workplace, it leads people to be more like Jake and less like Kate, right? Which I'm sure you know. I mean, I'll explain it. So there's Jake and there's Kate. Jake, the, the co-worker who is disengaged, someone who checks his cell phone all the time, looks at Facebook and complains about the company, maybe spends time looking for other jobs, as opposed to Kate, who's engaged and she can talk with people and collaborates well, feels a sense of community. And this picture, this wonderful little thing, is based off of hard data. Uh, there was a 2013 Gallup poll where they looked across just every different, just all these different businesses all across America, all across our nation, and what they found was that only 30% of Americans are Kate. 30% of Americans are engaged in their work. And this has been true for years and years and years and years. Only about 30% of, of Americans are actually engaged, feel engaged in their work, believe in what they're doing, believe it's worthwhile. Another 50% are like Jake, where they're just like, ah, I don't know, like, what's up with Facebook? And then my favorite is the bottom 18 to 20% who are actively disengaged, which they qualified as people who are literally spend all of their time trying to undermine their boss. So I'm like, I got to meet that guy because he sounds kind of fun. Uh, but... <laughs> We see that, man, when you're not engaged, it's a, it's a bad thing. It hurts businesses. Businesses want their workers to be engaged. And yet what we're finding is that more and more people are not engaged in their work. More and more people don't have faith in what they're doing. They don't see their work as worthwhile. And when we approach our work without that faith, without that belief, without that sense of worth, what we do is we experience disillusionment, disillusionment disillusionment. And we experience disappointment. And we fail to find fulfillment in our jobs. It's a bad thing. Even our secular culture looks at them and they're like, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a bad thing. So why did this happen? How did our faith and work become so disconnected? Why do we stop believing in the worth of our work? What we see in Scripture is a very clear explanation. Hope read it to us a minute ago, but in Genesis chapter 3, God is speaking to Adam, and he tells him, because you obeyed your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground, thanks to you. In painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. God is speaking to Adam, the first man, alongside Eve, the first woman, in the Garden of Eden, the beginning of humanity, the cradle of civilization. God's looking at them and he says, you, you failed. 
Right? This is a moment where he brings curses against the earth, against humanity, because what, what God saw was disobedience in their mix. That he saw sin. He told them, look, there's all, this plenty, there's all this provision. I've given you all these things. Just don't go here. Just don't eat this one thing. They ate it. They, they failed. They sinned. And so through sin, death entered the world. Destruction entered the world. Brokenness entered the world. And this is, this is ground zero. God says, I've seen your sin. You, you ate what I told you not to eat. So therefore, the ground itself is cursed. In painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. But you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you will return. Now, there's a lot happening in this passage, and we're going to actually sit on this. We're going to study this more in depth in the next few weeks. But what we see, just kind of brief overview, basic idea, big idea that we're seeing presented right here is work is becoming difficult. That's what's happening right here in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Work is becoming difficult. Work was already there, and it was good. God designed it. God created work. God himself worked. But now it's becoming difficult. The ground is cursed. There's going to be thorns. There's going to be thistles. You're going to be sweating. By golly, in College Station, Texas, we know we will be sweating through our work. God says there's going to be difficulty in this. And sadly, because of the difficulty of work, many people will take this. They'll see the difficulty. They'll see the hardship. They'll they'll feel the sweat. They'll feel the thorns. They'll see the thistles. And they'll assume that, therefore, it must be inherently bad. And so they disconnect it from their God and their faith. They assume, man, work is hard and it's bad. Therefore, it's got to be just a bad thing. It's got to be a sinful thing. If this was an ideal world, we wouldn't have to to work. That's an assumption that many of us make. And so because of that, a lot of us have become dualists, all right? Not not necessarily in the sense that we slap each other with gloves and meet each other at high noon. Uh, That would be awesome. But we are dualists, meaning that we see the world in two sectors. We divide the world in half. What we see generally is a physical world and then a spiritual or mental world. Christians do this, believers do this, but even non-believers do this. This has been present in civilization for a long, 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 long time. A dualistic view of the world where there's the physical and there's the spiritual. And they separate it and they assume generally, historically, that one must be inherently good and the other one must be inherently bad. That's what the Greeks assumed. The Greeks looked at this dual view of the world and they assumed, okay, well, the spiritual, the mental, must be good. Right? Because it's so just out there and fun and mystical. So that, that's going to be the good part. Therefore, the physical must be evil and worthless. They saw the physical body as an evil thing. Therefore, they saw all physical and manual work as demeaning, as a terrible pursuit, as a worthless life if you had to perform manual labor. The Greeks hated it. Uh, one scholar wrote that to the Greeks, work was a curse and nothing else. Work was a curse. To the point that even famous Greeks like Aristotle, they saw unemployment as the primary requirement of a worthwhile life. Aristotle would go on record saying, man, I, I think if we looked out and if someone could just not work ever, if someone could just be perpetually unemployed, that is the most worthwhile life. That's the most worthy endeavor to be unemployed. Something that many have considered, right? At the eight-hour mark of that, I guess it's a Netflix day, day, right? 
We've all been there. We've all thought, yeah, maybe, maybe just a life of leisure would be ideal. Some of us have parents or grandparents, or maybe we ourselves are looking towards that moment where we get to flip the switch, where we retire from our job, and we get to just do nothing. And we assume that that's the worthwhile life, the one where you do whatever you want all day, no work involved. Start with the Greeks. They said work itself is a, is a curse. They saw the spiritual and mental as the worthwhile thing. That's why the elite, the, the wealthy among the Greeks, they spent all their time on art and philosophy, uh, on politics. Because they said, yeah, I mean, once you've made it, like, who needs work? That stuff is terrible. And that carries into our modern economy, and it carries into our modern church. It carries into our economy in that we see uh, a lot of times the, uh, a wage gap, right, between those white-collar and blue-collar jobs. Some of you are maybe even at college because your parents were more of the blue-collar vocation. And they said, you got to go to college so you can get a better job, so you don't do this thing, or so you don't have to work like granddad, or whatever it is. We've all seen that, where there's that gap where people tend to look down on manual labor. Even skilled craftsmen who work with their hands, we assume, well, that's kind of a lesser thing. And it started with the Greeks. It starts with this dualistic view of our world where one is bad and the other is good. We see it in our church. We see it where the church itself has even divided the world into the sacred and the secular. Where, you know, if you're a pastor, if you're standing on a stage mispronouncing words and telling people about Jesus, then, well, of course you have some sort of eternal impact. Right? Of course I have eternal worth in my vocation because I work for a church. And what's the eternal worth What's the eternal impact of being an engineer? Have you ever heard anyone talk about that in any church? Of course, I'm doing ministry, or of course, the people helping in children's ministry or, or youth ministry, right? If you're involved in a ministry, young life ministry, impact ministry, well, yeah, you're in a ministry. You're ministering to people for God. But what about being an accountant? about working at an accounting firm? What about going to one of the big four accounting firms? Doing your job. Is that a ministry? It is. But have you heard anyone in any church ever talk about that? Sadly, the church itself has fed this skewed view of our world, of seeing work as almost a lesser thing. One pastor named David Miller said that whether conscious or unintended, the pulpit all too frequently sends the signal that work in the church matters, but work in the world does not. Professionals often feel unsupported by the Sunday church in their Monday marketplace vocations. Man, historically this has happened, and it's really tragic. Because even when churches talk about work, when they talk about the Monday marketplace vocation, a lot of times they make it still indirectly church-focused, right? Even when they try to incorporate like, okay, yeah, your faith can still play into your job in some way. Generally, it's in a way that still points back to the church, uh, meaning that a lot of times when we talk to uh, people about you know, getting a job in that accounting firm or owning your, being an entrepreneur and starting your own business or being a teacher, we tell them, well, yeah, that's great. You can go and work in that place and you can make money that you can then tithe back to church where it matters. Or we tell people, yeah, no, no, it's great. You can go into your workplace and, and you can meet non-believers and you can evangelize to them so that you can take them with you back to church. Even when we talk about faith and work, which is rare, 
we generally tie it back to church. It's like a Christmas long ago when I looked at my beautiful wife, who I've been married to for six years, and I told her, you know what? This year, your gift is a bread maker. This beautiful machine, modern technology at its finest, where you can make bread super fast. And I gave it to her because deep down I knew that she would use this bread maker to make delicious cinnamon rolls. It's one of her specialties in life. Uh, It's, I would say, her highest calling, uh, (laughs) right above mom. Uh, And she makes these amazing cinnamon rolls. And I gave her this gift, this bread maker. And you know what? The reality is that that gift, sure, I mean, I could present it and I didn't say that out loud. I was like, oh, here you go. I thought you'd like this. How about some cinnamon rolls, huh? (laughs) But even though I didn't say that, it's still indirectly Jacob-focused, right? I've totally done that in my life. Now, I haven't done that for every gift, thankfully, uh, because we had a conversation about it. But (laughs) I give her other gifts as well that remain Susan-focused. We as a church need to talk about work in a way that is work-focused. Evangelism and tithing are very good disciplines that we should talk about, but they're still indirectly church-focused. So how do we connect work with faith directly? Is there a connection between faith and work that doesn't have to tie back to the church? Spoiler alert, yes, there is. First and foremost, what we need to do as a community of believers is recognize that work is good. Work is good. All work can have worth because it was designed by God. When God first made the world, what was he doing? He was working. When God first placed Adam in creation, what did he tell him to do? Sit back and ponder ethics and life and politics? No, he told him, get to work. Create, cultivate, rule over this land that I've given you. Work is good. Just because sin has distorted it, just because sin has made it difficult, doesn't mean that work is inherently bad. There are plenty of difficult things that are still good. We recognize this. There are lots of things that are hard, but we still know deep down that they are inherently good. Marriage is difficult. It is a difficult relationship to maintain. It's a difficult relationship to, to grow and flourish over years and years and years of faithfulness. It's difficult, but it's so good. It's so good. Some of you are like, I know. I want it. <laughs> How? <laughs> it's so good. I mean, our, our society as a whole, even non-believers, they recognize it's so good. 95% of Americans get married at some point. 95%. Why? Because they know it's good. They see that it's difficult, but they still know it's good. Exercise. <laughs> I've been told <laughs> it's good, <laughs> supposedly, right? No, I mean, it's good, right? You need it. Right now, you're okay. You can coast. I lived those years. I loved them. Live it up. But at some point... <laughs> At some point, you will need it to live and not have your back fall out of your skin. You will need exercise, and it's difficult, but it's good. 
it keeps you in check. It allows you to live life to its fullest. It is a good but difficult thing. Parenting is difficult. Sometimes your kid will be a difficult person. I have a 13-year-old, or 13-year-old, 13-month-old daughter. Surprise! I have a 13-month-old daughter. Her name is Charlotte, and she's amazing. Seen here, enjoying, I'm assuming, hour eight of her Netflix day, uh, discussed earlier. Charlotte is 13 months old, and Charlotte has learned and grown a lot, but it's been a difficult process. And there are still things that are difficult in raising her. Sometimes your child, as wonderful as they are, will poop (laughs) on your brand new rug. It's true. She did it last week. (laughs) Last week. We gave her a bath. I was cleaning up the bath. Susan was in the bedroom, about to get Charlotte dressed. And I just hear, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening! (laughs) And I knew immediately, she's pooping on our brand new rug. Because parenting is difficult. (laughs) But it's so good. It's so good. There are so many things in our world that are difficult and yet still inherently good. Work is no different. For the ancient Greeks, he, when they're looking at God, he's t- this is an author talking about what God would have looked like to these different civilizations. If they were looking for God in the flesh, for the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. Man, I love that. How does Yahweh make himself known? When Jesus Christ steps out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for us, to live that perfect life we could not live, to die that death that we deserved, what was his vocation? What did he do in the years, probably about 30 years leading up to the beginning of his ministry? He was a carpenter. Literally in the Hebrew, he was one who worked with his hands worked. Because work is good. Our God is a worker, and he has designed us to work. That's next week. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. It's difficult, but it's good. We need to see that work is good. We need to see that all work can have worth, that all work is good, whether it is secular or sacred. Martin Luther, a famous reformer of the church, who basically started off, or was a major part of this Protestant Reformation, which, which basically split the church from it's, everyone was basically Catholic to suddenly there's other people, there are Protestants around, and it's like, what? And so we had this moment, and we talk a lot about the theology that changed. We talk a lot about how justification was viewed and, and faith and these different things, uh, a lot of what we talked about even last semester in the Soteriology series. But what we saw also in that Reformation was more than just a theological view of how do we understand God and how do we look at God. There are also incredibly practical pieces of life that were affected by this. One of them was our view of work. The Reformation shook stuff up. Up until the Reformation, the church historically would look at work and they would say, you know what? If you're in the ministry of God, in other words, if you're in God's domain, if you work for the church, it's good. And that's what God is calling you to. Anything else is inconsequential. Anything else is just of the world. Therefore, it's not going to last. It's nothing of worth. Nothing matters in there. Just make sure whatever you're doing ties back to the church. When the Reformation happened, 
Man, we shook that up. Because I was wrong. So Martin Luther himself said that all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. This line that the church at the time was trying to draw between the spiritual and the non-spiritual, the, the church and the, the not-church. He says, no, we're all of the spiritual estate. There is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests. And he wasn't just making this up, right? He's pulling this straight from Scripture. First Peter 2 tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You once were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's speaking to all believers, and he says, you have a new identity. You have a new You are part of a new nation. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. You are God's people. Therefore, the things that you do, anything, anything that you do can be for God because you're his people. We are all a part of this royal priesthood. God has given us a variety of talents and abilities and passions Because God wants us to use them to serve him in a variety of ways. We are all so different from one another. And that is so apparent from time to time. And it's something that can cause a lot of frustration and friction in our lives. But it should cause celebration. It should cause us to be thankful. To know that not everyone in the body of Christ is an eye. Not everyone in the body of Christ is an ear. Instead, we are all different. We serve different roles. We, we have different talents and abilities and passions. And sometimes those align with God's passions. Sometimes our desires can align with the Lord's desires. And when that happens, man, no matter what we're doing, it can be for him. When Susan and I were dating, there was this monumental moment that we reached about a year in where we were kind of talking about what to do that evening. We had kind of been hanging out, and we had some friends that were going to go out, and they were like going to go dancing or, I don't know, do something. And there was this moment, this pivotal moment, where we were kind of talking about like going and joining them and doing this activity. And so, you know, when you're dating, you're like, well, I mean, I need to be fun. I need to like make sure we're having a good time. But really deep down, I really had, I wanted nothing to do with the thing. I was just like, I want to do nothing. But I couldn't say that because I needed to be fun, right? So I was like, oh, yeah, we can totally go to that thing, right? How do you feel about it? And she was, you know, like, oh, yeah, that could be really, that could be really fun. Uh, maybe, yeah, I'm on board for that. And we kind of we got to this moment where both of us sort of kind of knew, like, wait, are you? Are you totally? And we just, we got out. We were like, do you not really want to go to this? And she was like, no. Oh, my gosh, no. She's like, but you do, right? I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do anything with anyone ever. Like, that's, that's like who I am. I want to spend no time with nobody ever. And we realized this in the moment. And we were like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're on the same wavelength here. Okay. And, man, and this, it was, I literally remember having this conversation at her house because there was this moment where I was like, yeah. Our desires have aligned. I suddenly realized, man, gosh, 
I don't want to do anything with anybody ever again with you. What's up, girl? You know, and we had this great connection where I realized, man, it's a beautiful thing when your desires align with a person that you're intimately involved with, right? And of course, there are still times where we find ourselves having desires that aren't the best, right? That we're going to have desires and motivations and passions and goals that do not align with God's. It's going to happen because of sin. We've been skewed, we've been marred, we've been scratched up, we've been broken by sin. So we're still going to have desires that are way off track. But thanks to the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, the Holy Spirit who is God's gift to every single person who places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the Holy Spirit who is given to every believer as a seal, as a guarantee, as a down payment on the eternal life yet to come, because of that Holy Spirit that every believer has, we do have some desires that do align with God's. Everyone who believes in Christ has this transformation, this restoration occur, where they have a new heart and a new desire that competes with their old sinful ways. And when I choose that desire, when I choose to pursue that goal, that passion, that leaning, that affection, whatever it might be, it's in the Lord's will. It's in the Lord's desire. And you know what? Sometimes, many times, that involves my work, my vocation, my career, what I'm doing in the world. Sometimes it's really difficult for us to discern those desires, right? To maybe even make the distinction between what is a holy desire, what's, what's God's desire, what's, what's mine, uh, where do they kind of align. And, and honestly, that's one of the main reasons that we push day in, day out, week in, week out, semester in, semester out, community. That's why we push fellowship. That's why we push this idea that you need to be involved in a community of believers. You need to be in a place where you are known. It could be here at Grace, but it needs to be somewhere. Maybe it's not at Grace. That's that is A-OK. Maybe it's at Declaration. Maybe it's at New Life. Maybe it's at Antioch. Maybe it's at Central Baptist. Whatever. But you need to be in a community of believers who will help you discern those desires, who will help you discern your gifts and discern your abilities. That's why wherever you go, including grace, I would encourage you to become a member. It's something that we're going to be pushing all semester during this entire series because membership is something that guarantees that you will be a part of a community where people will help you discern those desires. If you decide to become a member of Grace Bible Church, the first step is that you go to a class. You go, it's just a lunch. It's 12 to 3. The next one is on February, February 28th. Nope, I just made that up. I can't, February 14th, that's what it is. February 14th, Valentine's Day. What better way to celebrate <laughs> than bringing your betrothed or your loved one to membership class? 12 to 3. It's going to be at Southwood on the 14th. Uh, March 6th is the next one at Anderson. You can go to either one to be a member of either campus. But if you go to that class, you spend those three hours, you're not just going to learn about like, this is what grace does and this is what grace believes. But you will begin the step into a community of believers who want to help you and guide you and allow you to discover where God is calling you 
where God wants you to be, where God wants you to work. We want to help you discern where has God gifted you and, and, and given you passions that align with his own. We want to keep you accountable to pursue those things. That's what membership does. So think about it. Wherever you go, you need to be in some sort of community, in a place where you're known. Membership even isn't even enough. I would say wherever you go, you need to be a part of some sort of small group, whether it's a home group or a, or a life group at Antioch, whatever it is. If you're here at Grace, we have home groups that are mixed generations. You can be in with adults. If you want to uh, be here at Grace, you can be in a small group of just college students. Maybe some of our groups have a, a service component attached to them. Some of them don't. You can walk through the book of James this semester, or instead you can spend your semester looking at a study that we just developed that's all about kind of finding God's purpose for your life, kind of looking towards, like, how do I make these decisions? How do I view the world with a godly perspective? We have all kinds of options. But the goal with all of them isn't just to, like, go through this really great curriculum. The goal is that you would be in a community of believers who love you and care about you and want to help you discern where God's going to put you, where God's calling you. Work is good. All work is good, whether it's sacred or secular, because it's all taking place in a world that God rules, because it's all taking place in a world that God created. Colossians tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. God is the original author of all this around you. So it makes sense that no matter where you are, if you are walking by faith, if you're following the Lord's desire, you're bringing him glory, you're honoring him because you're being diligent and faithful with his creation. You're going to bring life and blessing to the world around you if you're walking by that faith, if you're following his desire, no matter where you are. That's why Keller, in an excellent book that we're basing the series off of called The Every Good Endeavor, says that our work should be reimagined as a mission or a service to something beyond our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person and undermines society itself. Going into work thinking about myself and how it's going to feed me and how it's going to make me feel better and how it's going to fulfill my interests and do all these great things for me, that's when I become a Jake with a frowny face. It's only when I see it as a mission. It's only when I realize that I'm serving something beyond my own interests. That's when I'm a cake. That's when I'm engaged. That's when I'm walking in the will of God. That's what God calls me to. Man, what if every single believer recognized their work as God's mission? What if we did that? What if we realized that every school we work in, what if we realized that every engineering firm or or law office or accounting practice, uh, what if we realized, you know, wherever RPTS people go is a mission from God? What would that do to our workplaces? What would that reveal to our coworkers? What would that do to our our communities? What would that do to our families? What would that do to our world if every believer 
saw themselves as on mission for the Lord. Even when they're outside of these very small church walls. We're going to take a moment now, even though it's super crowded, we're still going to do it. We're going to pray together as a community. Something that we do from time to time here. Uh, it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be intimidating, I promise. Uh, what you're going to do is you're going to find someone nearby, uh, one or two people, depending on whatever, however the numbers shake out, one or two people near you uh, that maybe you know, that's fine, or maybe you don't know them. That's even better. And you're just going to share with that one person, those two people, very briefly, you're just going to share with them, and where is God placing you to work this semester? For many of us, it's going to be in some classes, right? I hope. <laughs> For some of us, it's going to be not just class. Maybe there's a part-time job that we're undertaking. Or some of us, maybe it's this big research project. Or some of us, maybe it's this other endeavor. Maybe some of us, it's this thing that we do back home on weekends that's just kind of stressing us out. I don't know. We have a variety of places because God has given us a variety of gifts and talents and abilities and passions. So share very briefly with the people around you that, you that you talk with. Share with them. I mean, this is where, this is what God's really putting on my heart right now. This is where I know that God is placing me to work this semester. And you're going to share very briefly so that you then have time to pray together. To ask the Lord to use each other's work in those places to bring glory to himself and to bring good to the people around you. So go ahead and find one or two people and do that right now. Lord, God, we, we thank you. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have put us in this place, God, not, not on our own, that, God, you haven't isolated us in our endeavor to glorify you, but that, Lord, you've surrounded us with a community of fellow believers, Lord, who, who have the same ultimate goal. God, maybe you've given different talents, maybe you've given different abilities, you've given different uh, passions, but Lord, yet we're still united by that ultimate goal of making you known, God, of bringing you glory, of lifting your name high above all other names. Lord, we thank you that you have put us in a world where we're going to classes and we're going to jobs and we're looking at careers and they're not things that are isolated from you, Lord, things that are somehow outside of your grasp. Lord, we thank you that we're walking into your classrooms tomorrow. God, we're walking into your accounting firm in the fall. Lord, we're walking into your school next year. God, all of this, everything around us was created through and for you. Lord, we thank you for that that beautiful truth that gives worth and goodness to every endeavor, Lord, to every career, to every job, to every focus. So Lord, we just ask that we would remember that, that God, we would bring that faith and that belief into our workplaces or our classrooms or wherever we might find ourselves. If you would take a moment now and, and ask the Lord to convict you, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of of where you tend to disregard the work that God gives you. Ask him to, to bring to your mind where you often uh, maybe are lazy, where maybe you are often forgetful, where maybe you're often uh, just unwilling to, to go above and beyond. 
to work faithfully and, and excellently. Ask God to, to convict you of where that is. And then ask him to, to strengthen you where you're weak. Ask, ask the Lord to be strong in your weakness, to fill those gaps, to, to give you the strength and the perseverance to work well in that endeavor. Ask him for that right now.